0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hello, cardio nerds. My name is Eunice Dugan, and I'm a current cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm going to remain here for interventional cardiology training, as well as a house faculty for the Cardio Nerds Academy. Really excited today because this episode kicks off our multi-episode journey into the multidisciplinary world of obesity. With a significant proportion of the population affected by this disease, the new host of therapeutics on the horizon, it is an essential topic for cardiologists to understand in depth. We will be starting off with a detailed look at the interplay between obesity and cardiovascular disease risk. I'm excited to be covering this episode with series co-chair, Dr. Rick Ferraro. He's a cardiology fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and he's a legend. Rick, what's going on?
2: (laughs) That's way too nice. I am doing great. And I'm so glad to be here with you today and discuss this hugely important topic. I'm super happy to introduce the lead of our first episode in this series, Dr. Tiffany Brazil. Dr. Brazil is a cardiology fellow at UT Southwestern and completed her residency at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. She has a career interest in cardiovascular prevention and I could not be more excited to learn from her and our expert discussed on this episode. Welcome, Tiffany.
3: Thank you, Rick. I have the honor of introducing Dr. Jamie Almendez, the medical director of the Weight Wellness Program and an associate professor of medicine at UT Southwestern. He is a triple board certified in obesity medicine, endocrinology, and internal medicine. Dr. Almendose graduated from the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland, completed his internal medicine residency and endocrinology fellowship training at the Mayo Clinic and a fellowship in nutrition and metabolic diseases at UT Southwestern. In addition to providing expert patient care in non-surgical and post-surgical weight loss, he is involved in numerous clinical trials. We are thrilled to have you join us today, Dr. Almendos.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
3: All right, Dr.
1: Almendos, let's start with a little fact or fiction to get us warmed up. Fact or fiction, it is possible to be healthy at any size.
0: I'm going to be a little bit of a politician on answering this, and so I'm going to say yes, but. So we know that excess body weight is associated with excess body fat, which itself is associated with negative health outcomes and cardiometabolic diseases. Some studies report that around 10% of people with obesity have metabolically healthy obesity. One of the things is that obesity prevalence in younger adults is on the rise. So there may be many more younger people who are otherwise healthy who have obesity and are therefore metabolically healthy. However, when we look at longer term studies, we can see that about a third of people with metabolically healthy obesity will develop a cardiometabolic complication within about five years. However, that's a little bit short-sighted. Often when we think of health complications with obesity, we're thinking about type 2 diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea. What we don't often think about when we're looking at health and obesity are biomechanical complications like obstructive sleep apnea, joint pain, urinary incontinence, or psychosocial challenges like the bidirectional relationship between obesity and mood disorder, or even the weight bias and obesity stigma that many people who live in larger bodies experience every day. So I would say, yes, it is possible to be healthy at any size, but it all depends what you mean by health and what the durability of that health is.
3: Wow, what a comprehensive and thoughtful answer. And we'll be able to dive deeper into these ideas over the course of today's episode. You really highlight the importance of having a multidisciplinary collaboration that involves the patient when we think about cardiovascular disease prevention and obesity. So next up for Fact or Fiction. Large, rapid weight loss results in poorer long term weight loss outcomes as compared with slow, gradual weight loss.
0: I think some of the concern around kind of rapid weight loss not leading to great weight loss outcomes or durable outcomes comes from kind of lifestyle interventions where large, rapid kind of magnitudes of weight reduction are due to maybe very restrictive dietary patterns or very high intensity physical activity that's really unsustainable. I think we also need to think about. Is rapid weight loss healthy and appropriate for all people who are living with obesity? There may be higher risk populations such as older adults in whom rapid weight loss may lead to increased lean mass loss or risk of frailty or falls. So I think what we need to do is look at what is the person in kind of an individualized way that we're treating. And are we using evidence-based and safe and effective ways of inducing large magnitudes of weight loss, such as bariatric surgery or anti obesity medications, where patients are being appropriately monitored, followed, and receiving appropriate nutritional advice and physical activity recommendations?
2: Those were some great questions. And, and Dr. amando is really already learning so much from you just in your response there. I'm excited to take us to see some patients at our CardioNerds Prevention Clinic now. Our first patient is Olivia B. She's a 47-year-old woman with a past medical history of class 3 obesity. Her BMI, body mass index, is 37. She has a history of low back pain with sciatica and depression, currently taking duloxetine. She occasionally smokes marijuana for pain relief and has one to two mixed drinks on the weekend. She does not smoke cigarettes. She recently completed physical therapy for her sciatica and does 30 minutes of yoga with a YouTube video five days a week. Her blood pressure is 118 over 82. Heart rate is 74. Her hemoglobin A1C is 5.2. And on her lipid panel, her total cholesterol is 180. Her high density lipoprotein, HDLC, is 62. Her LDLC is 100. And her triglycerides are 160. On her comprehensive metabolic panel, it's largely within normal limits, and her creatinine is 0.95. She does not know her family history as she was adopted. And she has become more focused on her health as she approaches menopause. She has heard that being obese has an impact on her health. However, since her lab values and blood pressure are within normal range, she's not sure how concerned she should be about this. Dr. Almendos, how would you explain
0: the association between obesity and cardiovascular disease risk to this patient? I don't mean to derail the discussion, but really what I'm hearing you ask is, how can I help this patient understand that even though she doesn't have cardiometabolic complications of her obesity now, that her obesity may be problematic for her overall health and her long-term health outcomes. And I think one of the helpful things can be meeting the patient where they're at and looking at what their health is currently, what challenges they may be experiencing, and what their long-term goals are for their health in terms of treating any challenges they have now and preventing any outcomes that may be a threat in the future. This lady has back pain, she has sciatica, she has mood disorder, and talking with her about how a health journey, health behaviors that support healthy weight and cardiometabolic health may be helpful for improving her health right now, may be helpful engaging her in what is essentially chronic disease management for obesity and the other health challenges she has. I think in situations like this, it can be helpful to frame the conversation around why you're concerned about her health using kind of other measures, such as, for example, body composition, body fat and lean mass to explain where you're coming from a cardiometabolic health concern can be much more, or I should say, much less threatening to a patient who has come to a healthcare provider's office, not expecting to be told, hey, you know, you're otherwise well, but you should really lose weight. Because I think that can really start the conversation off on a wrong foot and really not engage patients in a way that will support them coming back to discuss really effective preventive care.
3: So a lot of wonderful points about building trust and, and really meeting a patient where they're at are, are really important here. And I think that any patient who's coming in with any class of obesity would not be the first time they've probably met a health practitioner and had a discussion about their weight. And so I think framing it in a way um, that is sensitive to the patient's need, but also addresses their own concerns is really powerful. So thanks so much for highlighting that. How should cardiologists specifically incorporate the presence of obesity into their overall assessment of a patient such as this for their risk for developing cardiovascular disease in the future?
0: Obesity is really a modifiable risk factor for cardiometabolic disease, but I think we need to kind of start from a place where we acknowledge that BMI is really a screening tool for obesity and is not great at individualizing risk for health complications, be they cardiometabolic or otherwise, in the individual in the office who's there. There's so much heterogeneity in terms of what BMI, which is, remember, a ratio of height to weight. It all depends on what that weight is made up of from a body composition perspective. But then there's increased heterogeneity in terms of how that translates into cardiometabolic risk across age, sex, and race, ethnicity, and other groups. And for example, you think a BMI of 30 could mean something very different for a 60-year-old South Asian woman who has stator hepatitis and type 2 diabetes compared with, say, a 30-year-old African-American male athlete. So I think there are lots of different ways to approach this, knowing that we need to look beyond BMI in terms of how we assess somebody's cardiometabolic risk.
1: That's great. I really like what you said about BMI being a screening tool. I kind of never thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense, especially given the heterogeneity that you're talking about. Now, we know some diseases disproportionately affect men or women or present differently does obesity impact men and women differently?
0: So there are lots of ways to look at this. In terms of obesity prevalence, there's a slightly higher prevalence of obesity amongst women in minority groups, for example. But the way in which it impacts health is also very different. If we think even in terms of body fat distribution, separate to obesity, men tend to have more of this kind of central or visceral fat accumulation, which we know is associated with cardiometabolic risk, whereas women may in earlier years have more of a lower body or gluteofemoral accumulation of adipose tissue but that can shift as the reproductive lifespan changes and this may be more of a a shift toward the central or visceral distribution with the menopause that can infer a cardiometabolic risk there's a lot of heterogeneity there amongst groups but also across the lifespan In terms of how that is and how that's impacting their health. So yes, there are a lot of different ways that there are differences between men and women and the impact that obesity is having on their health across the lifespan, but also across race, ethnicity and other groups that we need to take into account when we are assessing patients in the office and explaining why we're concerned about their weight.
3: A lot of really excellent points there in terms of thinking about all of the different types of patients we will encounter who will have different needs and different risk, even though their numbers may very well look the same. So moving on to our next patient that may also help illustrate some of the ideas you've mentioned further, we have Mr. Peter P., He's a 58-year-old man of South Asian descent with hypertension that's well-controlled on Losartan. His hemoglobin A1C is 5.9%, has a history of dyslipidemia on simvastatin, and a recent diagnosis of maffold. He has a family history of type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, and coronary artery disease in his father. He works as a software engineer and likes to go for a leisurely bike ride one or two times a week. He is a never smoker and enjoys a glass of wine twice monthly. He reports that his pants have been feeling a little tight lately, and he's concerned about the trends that his labs have taken. His 10-year ASCVD risk, based on the pooled cohort equation, is 7%. Dr. Almendos, what is your approach to evaluating and measuring obesity during a new patient visit such as this?
0: We can start with kind of basic anthropometrics with regards to kind of height and uh weight and calculate BMI. We have a South Asian gentleman here. I didn't get details on his height and weight, but I did get kind of a little glimpse that his pants are a little bit tighter. And I guess that's suggesting that there may be some visceral adiposity there, which may be developing. When we look at kind of the impact of visceral adiposity on health, it can be maybe more helpful when rather than looking at just purely BMI, particularly for South Asians, where they may develop cardiometabolic complications at a lower BMI compared with say non-Hispanic white or non-Hispanic black populations. What we do when patients come into the clinic is we start off with measuring height and weight, waist circumference, but we also use bioelectrical impedance as a very kind of practical way of assessing body composition where people come into the clinic. When we look at research studies, often we will have body composition measures done by things such as DEXA or whole body MRI, but there's a really impractical for day-to-day clinical workflows in terms of how we assess body composition. And so this is kind of really where we start when someone comes into our clinic.
1: Dr. Almendos, you started talking about this a little bit, but can you touch more on how guidelines differ for patients across ethnic or racial groups?
0: There are kind of a few things here in terms of what we mean by guidelines or maybe kind of risk stratification cut points, perhaps for different groups. We know, as I started talking about Mr. Peter P, he's a South Asian gentleman, we know that people of South Asian descent may be at risk for cardiometabolic complications at a lower BMI than other race ethnicity groups for a variety of reasons. When we look at data around body composition, for example, for the same BMI, South Asian individuals may have lower lean mass, which we know is associated with negative cardiometabolic outcomes, but also higher body fat and higher kind of intramuscular fat or ectopic fat as well which is associated with a host of things, including insulin resistance and cardiometabolic disease and poor outcomes. When we look at then guidelines for treatment, there are kind of very significantly specific guidelines for people of Asian heritage, where the BMI cutoffs for treatment are about 2.5 points lower, for example, bariatric surgery. There are the NIH 1991 guidelines that are still used by most payers for bariatric surgery, where it's for BMI 40 or greater or 35 to 40 with weight-related complication. Whereas for people who are Asian, we decrease the BMI cut points by 2.5. There are newer recommendations from the ASMBS and IFSO main bariatric surgery guidelines to decrease the BMI cut points, given that we have great evidence that people benefit from bariatric surgery at lower rates. From a anti obesity medication perspective, there are also different cut points, whereas the general population BMI is 30 without the need for a complication or 27 with one weight-related complication. We can also decrease those BMI points for people of Asian ancestry.
2: Dr. Almondos, that's really important information, and highlighting some of those differences is really helpful, I think, for a lot of providers in the clinic. We've discussed this a little bit already, but how does the patient's
0: excess adiposity specifically influence his cardiovascular disease risk? So there are a variety of ways in which adiposity impacts cardiovascular or cardiometabolic risk. This gentleman in the case had pre-diabetes, he has NASH, he has a family history of coronary disease. I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, it sounds from the vignette that he has central visceral adiposity. What that fat distribution pattern is associated with, these kind of incident problems or complications. And it's important when we're looking across race ethnicity groups that we are assessing people appropriately. So that we're not underestimating their risk and that we're treating them appropriately by using the appropriate risk calculators or clinical assessments or biomarkers within clinic to make sure that we are meeting their needs for cardiometabolic protection.
3: All excellent points. And one thing I wanted to highlight is you mentioned these different risk calculators. Very frequently in, in the cardiovascular clinic, we'll use the pooled cohort equation, which unfortunately doesn't have a lot of underlying information from specific ethnic or racial cohorts. And I think it's helpful to know that there's other risk calculators out there such as the Q risk3 calculator, which includes some other novel variables that you've mentioned from our other case as well, such as the presence of any sort of comorbid mental illness. It also includes things like CKD, Um, blood pressure variability, a history of migraines or erectile dysfunction, and some of these other risk factors that impact people's risk from both a cardiovascular but also perhaps a a metabolic perspective, something we should certainly be taking into account when we encounter these patients. For our last patient today, we have Rodney R. He's a 60-year-old male with a past medical history of coronary artery disease, status post-PCI to his RCA two years ago, He has a left ventricular ejection fraction of 60%, hypertension, insulin-dependent diabetes, CKD stage 3, and hyperlipidemia on rosuvastatin, as well as class 1 obesity with a BMI of 33. He had a CT test during a previous hospitalization that reported the presence of a large pericardial fat pad. He is a former smoker and does not drink alcohol. He aims to get 8,000 steps per day. He's tried a variety of diets over the years to lose weight, but has always gained it back. He is curious about what treatments are available for weight loss and if the pericardial fat pad is worrisome. Could you explain the known or proposed mechanisms by which obesity impacts the development of cardiovascular disease?
0: Obesity and kind of lipotoxicity impacts almost every tissue and kind of cell in the body. I think there are variety of ways in which excess body fat or or kind of adiposity can impact cardiovascular disease development, everything through inflammation, prothrombotic state, hypoxia, insulin resistance and development of type 2 diabetes and alterations in lipid metabolism that promote poor cardiometabolic health, atherosclerosis and, and negative outcomes in general. This gentleman is curious about what treatments are available for weight loss and if the pericardiopath fat is worrisome. With all of that, I think incorporating the imaging modalities we have to kind of show patients that we're not just talking about the number on the scale. Because for many of them, it's usually this is something that they've heard for many years and approaching this in a way that we are individualizing the risk stratification concern for that person in the room rather than just making a generic comment about weight. But then also you mentioned he's curious about what treatments are available for weight loss. And you also mentioned that he has previously tried lifestyle modification and has regained weight with that. I think it's so important to make sure that we are offering patients tools to achieve not just their desired goals around weight and cardiometabolic health, but also the goals that we are setting them. We need to make sure that we don't just give people directions of you should lose this, but that we also facilitate the directions that we're doing by providing evidence-based tools to them.
1: Thank you, Dr. Almendos. Hearing all of this, you really get a sense of how obesity, as you said, the chronic condition and should be treated as so. You know, there's so much to talk about here. We talked a little bit about the central visceral adiposity, but of course we know there's multiple types of fat like warm adipose tissue, brown adipose tissue, and many different places where the body can store the fat. Now, how might specific ectopic fat deposits, such as in the pericardial area, intramuscular, hepatic, affect cardiovascular disease development?
0: Sure. That's a great question. You know, you start off by talking about white and brown adipose tissue. So brown adipose tissue is that metabolically helpful. That's the adipose tissue with kind of high mitochondrial load that can really help to boost metabolic health and performance from that perspective. White adipose tissue is more, let's say, the storage adipose, but it's not just a benign warehouse for calories. It's very kind of active in terms of producing Perhaps negative, say, inflammatory and other kind of markers, which can signal to adjacent tissues in a negative way Uh, within organ systems. It can cause dysfunction within the liver. It can cause inflammation and scarring, leading to cirrhosis. Fatty liver is now one of the leading causes for cirrhosis and need for liver transplantation in North America. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that there are inflammatory and other impacts of fat beyond just the number on the scale. There's also mechanical impacts of ectopic fat, such as around the heart and other parts of the body, but then also a variety of ways in which these ectopic fat uh, depots are impacting health that we don't fully understand, both the humoral and neurohormonal mechanisms by which they can impact overall health. But in the way in which we accrue fat in these areas and how can we target certain therapies, be it lifestyle interventions, pharmacotherapies or procedures to help to decrease fat in locations that we know are specifically harmful. I think so much work yet needs to be done on this.
1: I'd like to ask another question here. Do we know if there's kind of a progression as to where these ectopic fat deposits go? Does it usually go to the liver first or pericardial? And is there differences in races or ethnicity groups?
0: So again, politicians answer. There's a lot of heterogeneity and kind of genetic predisposition to kind of storage of ectopic fat and where it goes. There's a lot of heterogeneity and race and ethnicity groups. So you might say that Hispanic groups and South Asians or Asians in general may be more prone to hepatic or visceral adiposity in general. What's interesting is with weight loss, liver fat, for example, is one of the first places we start losing. But it's not to say that we can necessarily target with specific interventions of, oh, I'm going to do this specific diet or do this kind of resistance training or physical activity to target liver fat or another kind of fat defo. So again, there's just so much heterogeneity amongst groups with regards to where fat is stored, but it appears that things like liver fat seem to be treated with rather modest amounts of weight loss in terms of improving health earlier.
3: Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you so much for all of your wisdom and all of the information you've shared with us today. I've already learned so much, not only about the pathophysiology of uh, how obesity impacts cardiovascular disease and metabolic health, but also in ways that we can provide more compassionate, comprehensive care to our patients with obesity. In terms of wrapping things up, Dr. Almendos, what are your main takeaways for our audience today?
0: I think my main takeaway is that obesity is a highly prevalent and chronic complex disease. Many patients who we'll see in the office who are living with obesity have often experienced a lot of stigmatizing experience through well-intentioned healthcare interactions that really have not gone the way that the healthcare provider intended. Make sure that we approach the conversations around weight in a helpful and sensitive way. Start by asking permission. Can we talk about your weight today? when a patient comes to a cardiologist's office even if it's a preventive cardiologist they may not be expecting you to give them unsolicited dietary and lifestyle advice to change their weight make sure it doesn't come out of the blue sure that it's evidence based as well i think it's important to acknowledge that as much as lifestyle intervention is foundational for many kind of health outcomes and health in general an eat less move more approach is not effective for treating obesity in an effective way to decrease weight to a point that it's going to either treat or reverse cardiometabolic disease, and it's not very durable. We have many evidence-based therapies. There are very exciting emerging anti-obesity medications. There's bariatric surgery, and both of them are incredibly underutilized for treating obesity. But I think it's so important to focus in on not weight loss, but treating obesity, Because we're really focusing in, not on the number on the scale, but on overall health and quality of life.
2: Dr. Almondos, this has been such an incredible discussion. There's so much that I personally can take away from this. Your thoughts on individualizing care. I'm excited to go back and listen to this again, because there's really a lot there. And in general, we come at this from the cardiology angle here, but it's really a multidisciplinary subject and topic. That goes all the way across medicine. And there's a huge amount that I think listeners across the board can take away from this in any aspect of medicine. Noah, hearing that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on a question we ask everyone who comes here. What makes your
0: heart flutter about preventative cardiology and obesity management? What's making my heart flutter about it right now is all the developments in the obesity treatment space. This week at American Heart Association, we're going to see the report out of select trial that semagotide 2.4 and cardiovascular outcomes. And then also today, Tirzepatide was approved for obesity. So we're seeing kind of new indications for anti obesity medications and treatments in terms of how they can do more than just decrease body weight. And then we're also seeing a widening of the tools that we have available. I think really what we need to do now is advocate for better coverage for anti-obesity medications so that we can treat all people with obesity who want to and need to be treated.
1: That's so great. Dr. Almendos, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a treat. Obviously, you're a huge expert in the field, but I have to say I'm really impressed with your emphasis on really engaging with the patient and forming a partnership with them as you join on a health journey together. And what you said about treating obesity as a chronic condition and not really focusing on the weight loss is, I think, really an important thing to hear as cardiologists and as physicians in general. So thank you so much for joining us and for your wisdom.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
3: The select results were recently shared at the AHA scientific sessions. I'd like to briefly touch on these exciting results in the context of obesity and cardiovascular disease risk. And in summary, this randomized placebo-controlled trial with semaglutide of over 17,000 patients internationally with overweight or obesity and established cardiovascular disease without diabetes demonstrated an impressive 20% lower risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, including cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and stroke for those who took semaglutide. So just to start off, doctor Almondomes, what are your thoughts on the implications of this study for our patients?
0: I think this is so exciting that we have data with regards to an anti-obesity medication and treating obesity in people without a history of diabetes and seeing this magnitude of cardiovascular risk reduction it seems like we've been waiting on the results of the SELECT trial for so many years. And if you look at it in context, there's 20 million Americans who have coronary disease, and the majority of these people have a BMI above a healthy range, and about a third have type 2 diabetes. For people with type 2 diabetes, we know from studies like the SUSTAIN-6 trial, which looked at semaglutide, 0.5 milligrams and 1 milligram weekly versus placebo, We saw a reduction in cardiovascular events of about 26% in this group. When we look at the results from the SELECT trial, what we see is relatively early separation of these curves with regards to outcomes that we're interested in, the cardiovascular mortality, non-fatal MI, and stroke, and even all-cause mortality. And so the question is, you know, how much of the effect that we see here is directly attributable to the weight reduction or these other kind of cardiometabolic renal effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists and incretin therapies that we're seeing and emerging? And I think there's a lot to be looked into with regards to this, given how impactful treatment with semaglutide 2.4 milligrams weekly was for decreasing this composite of effects.
3: Those are really great points in line with some of the previous discussion we've had. Really understanding what percentage of somebody's body weight or excess adipose tissue they would need to lose and sustain over time to actually experience these cardiovascular disease benefits is something that I think we all look forward to seeing in in future trials and looking further out in time when patients have the opportunity to be on these medications for a duration and see the durable effects.
0: Absolutely. If we look at sustained six with some magnetite point five to one milligram, people lost on average about five percent of body weight and we saw like a twenty-six percent reduction. On average in the select trial, we're seeing around kind of ten percent body weight reduction and a twenty percent reduction in composite cardiovascular endpoints. So it's very interesting to look then at the subgroups with regards to who benefited most from treatment.
3: We really appreciate all of your thoughts on this groundbreaking trial. Cardio Nerds will be having an upcoming episode focusing more on some of these medications, including other GLP-1 receptor agonists. So we'll look forward to hearing that exciting episode too. Thanks for tuning in to another
4: CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Tina Reddy. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Thomas and fourth-year medical student at Tulane University. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode of the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes.
1: And team, one last thing. This episode is produced in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology with independent medical education grant support from Nova Nordis.
4: And now it's time to make like an S2 and split. <whistles>